0: All right, so we have been going through the book of Numbers, and last time we hit Numbers chapter 21, first nine verses, which talks about the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Jesus and the talked about... Aaron. What's that? The death of Aaron and the bronze serpent. Yes, the death of Aaron and the bronze serpent. We talked about that. So recently we talked about how Moses struck the rock, and he and Aaron were disqualified from entering the promised land. And then as, as Adam mentioned, Aaron, the brother of Moses, dies on Mount Hort. And the people test the Lord and are bit by poisonous serpents. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the, so we're down to the last of the 40 years in the wilderness, or Septuagint says 42. Uh, we're down to the last couple of years in the wilderness here with the death of Aaron. And so we're going to talk about a few things in, in this lesson that are tied in with that, particularly... The people that the the Jews are interacting with, and this will actually, some of the things we're talking about will help you in your study of the Old Testament. If you get a good foundation in the five books of Moses, it will really help you when different people, people's names pop up later on, you'll understand what's going on. So, uh, In Numbers 20, we encountered the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau. You know, Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers. The Edomites are descended from Esau, so they're closely related to the Jews, the the descendants of Israel. And then today, we're going to be encountering three other groups of people. and, And these people, they'll be showing up again and again throughout the Old Testament. So this is the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amorites, and so the challenge in this lesson is to tell the difference between the Ammonites and the Amorites, okay, and I like to think, in my mind, I need a simple mnemonic, so the Amorites, that's an R, stands for rotten, so those are the people that are rotten at the core, okay, so the, the Moabites and the Ammonites, uh, and then the Amorites, who are, who are pretty rotten, so Numbers chapter 21, let's start there, starting in verse 10. After this, the children of Israel broke camp and camped at Oboth. From there they broke camp and camped on the other side of Ar-Aboth. Then they broke camp at Aboth and ramped at Ea-Abarim, which is on the other side of the desert that's over against Moab toward the sunrise. From there they broke camp and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they broke camp and camped on the other side of Arnon, in the desert which runs along the border of the Amorites, For Arnon is on the border of Moab between the Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it's said in the books, and it continues down from there. So, uh, basically, Israelites are moving northward. They haven't crossed the Jordan River yet, so they're moving northward. They go through Edom, and they're they're traveling through the land of another nation, the Moabites. And... um, In Deuteronomy, there's a parallel account, and so they're they're traveling along, they're encountering these these other nations, and there's a parallel account in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Let's turn there. So this is written just shortly after these events occur, as we'll see in a little while. Deuteronomy chapter 2. 1 to 5. So we turned and journeyed on the desert road along the Red Sea as the Lord spoke to me, and we encircled Mount Seir for many days. Then the Lord spoke to me, saying, Let your encircling of this mountain be sufficient, therefore turn northward. Also command the people, saying, You're about to pass through the boundaries of your brethren, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and they'll be afraid of you and will be exceedingly dread of you. Do not engage them in war, nor will I give you any of their land no, no, not, not so much as a footstep, because I gave Mount Seir to the sons of Esau as an inheritance. So we talked about that before. They they pass by the residents of the, the descendants of Esau. It says, No, you're not going to get any of their land. Just pass on, by go on past them. And then verses eight and nine. Then we pass. So they're heading northward. He says, Then we pass beyond our brethren, the sons of Esau who dwell in Seir, along the road of Arabah from Elath and Azeon-Geber, and we turned and passed along the desert road toward Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Don't be at enmity with Moab or wage war with them, for I will not give you any of their land as inheritance, because I gave R to the sons of Lot to inherit. And then down in verse 16, So it was when all the men of war died from the midst of the people, then the Lord spoke to me, saying, Today you shall pass by the borders of Mount of Moab at Seir, but you shall not draw near the sons of Ammon. And you shall draw near the sons of Ammon. But do not be at enmity with them or wage war with them, for I will not give you any land of the sons of Ammon as inheritance, because I gave it to the sons of Lot as inheritance. So the, the, the sons of Esau, not going to have their land, the Edomites. Next group, the Moabites are heading north, not gonna have any of their land. Don't bother them. The next next group, the, the Ammonites, says, you're not gonna have any of their land either. Don't bother those guys. So so they're, they're the three three nations, it says, you're not gonna give them any, you're not gonna have any of their land because I gave them that land. So they they don't get land for any of those nations. If they're traveling northwards, it says the Edomites live south of the Dead Sea the Moabites leave east of the Dead Sea, and then the Ammonites are kind of northeast of the Dead Sea. The, let's read Genesis chapter 19. The Moabites and the Ammonites, it goes back to the story of uh, Genesis 19 to figure out who these people are because they'll show up in the scriptures many times after this as well. So, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's kind of a crazy story here, but after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed in uh, Genesis chapter 19, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot departs with his wife and his two daughters. His wife is turned into a pillar of salt. And this is one of the, my, my favorite cryptic warnings of Jesus. He just says, in Luke, he says, remember Lot's wife. And you just have to go and figure out what you're supposed to get from that. So there's a lesson in the story of Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt. She looked back from the country she was fleeing. And then, so, this, so his wife is, is turned to a pillar of salt, so it's just Lot and his two daughters, and then it gets kind of crazy after that. Verse, verse uh, 30, then Lot and his two daughters went up from Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave with his two daughters. Now the firstborn said to the younger, our father's old, and there's no man on earth to come into us as to the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we'll lie with him, that we may raise up seed from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the elder went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day, the elder said to the younger, Indeed, I slept with our father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, so we may raise up seed from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger went in and slept with him. But he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Then both the daughters of Lot conceived by their father. The elder bore a son and called his name Moab, saying, He's from my father. He is the father of the Moabites to the present day. Now the younger also bore a son, and they called his name Ammon, or I think in some translations it will say Ben-Ammi, saying, son of my family. He is the father of the Ammonites to the present day. So, and of course, the problem with Moab and, and Ammon is they didn't know whether to call Lot their father, daddy, or grandpa, because he was actually both. He was their father and their grandfather both at the same time. So, uh, so the Moabites and the Ammonites were related to the Israelites Through the family of Abraham, Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Remember when Abraham went from Ur of the Chaldees and he he traveled uh, along into the promised land, Lot went with him, his nephew. So uh, Lot's the nephew of Abraham and the Moabites and Ammonites are descended from Lot. Um, So... That's the Moabites and the Ammonites. So these are people that are close in relation to the Jews, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And now we run into a different group of people, the Amorites, and they, they're famous kings, Sihon and Og. And one of my favorite Bible names is Og. Okay, that's, uh, I don't know, it's, I've never run into anyone whose name, all, all the Bible names I've run into, I've never run into anyone who was named their son Og. So this, 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 that one's still out there if you're looking for, for new Bible names. Uh, the, the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, had territories east of the Jordan River. And this is kind of between the Moabites and the Ammonites. So the Israelites are moving north here, northward in general, and they encounter the territory of Sihon first, and then they encounter the territory of Og. These are two... Amorite kings. So Numbers 21, starting in verse uh, 21. <laughs> then Moses sent ambassadors to Sihon, king of the Amorites, with peaceful words, saying, Let us pass through your land. We'll journey on the road and not turn aside either the field or vineyard." We will not drink water from your well. We'll journey on the king's highway till we pass beyond your borders. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his borders. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out to engage Israel in battle in the desert. So he came to Jahaz and engaged Israel in battle. Then Israel struck him with slaughter by the sword and gained dominion over his land from the Arnon to Jabbok as far as the sons of Ammon. For Jazer is the border of the sons of Ammon. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon in all his villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who fought against the former king of Moab and took all his land from the Arar to Arnon. Uh, so then it goes on to there as a uh, as it gives it gives a, a riddle or a song. So. Uh, Unlike the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, the Amorite king decides to attack Israel and it doesn't go well for him. The Israelites defeat the king, kill all the people, and take over their land. Now, this stories like this cause a lot of problems for people because they say, wait a minute, This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God that you worship, and he's telling people to completely obliterate a whole nation. This is like, it's not like genocide. It is genocide. Basically, you're wiping out an entire nation, men, women, and children, and taking over all their land. So what's with that? And and people struggle with this, and I want to take a good, honest look at it. Why did the Lord insist that these people be wiped out? Why would God do such a thing to people? Uh, Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. I think part of the the, the clue is is in something that God told Abraham over 400 years earlier. In Genesis 15, this is when God spoke to Abraham saying that Abraham was in Canaan and God says, in the future, your descendants are going to be enslaved in another land for 400 years, and then after that they're going to come back and take over this land. So uh, in Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 5, then uh, he, meaning the Lord, brought Abraham outside and said to him, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your seed be. And Abram believed God, and he counted him for righteousness. Then he said to them, I am the God who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you the land, this land, to inherit it. And then he, he continues down a little further. And in verse 12, he says, Now around sunset, a trance fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and a great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know for certain your seed will be strangers in a land not their own and will serve them, and they will afflict and humble them four hundred years. Also the nation they serve I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, buried in a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will turn here, for the sin of the Amorites is not yet filled up. And it came to pass when the sun went down, there was a flame. Behold, there was appeared a smoking oven and lamps of fire that passed between the divided pieces. This is the animals that were slaughtered. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I will give this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Uaites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, He says, it's going to be 400 years before your descendants take over the land because the sin of the Amorites is not yet filled up. So, thinking, wow. So, the the Amorites were destined to become incredibly wicked people and God is going to wait until... The sin and the depravity has gotten full blossom, and then he's going to send his people in to wipe them out and take over their lands. That provides a little more insight into that. Also, the to give you uh, in Wisdom of Solomon, if you have a Bible that has that in it, that's in the uh, that was in the original King James, and uh, is in the Catholic and Orthodox Bible still. So, Wisdom of Solomon. There's a discussion about the people who were dispossessed by the Jews of what they were like. Because I wonder, okay, the sin of the Amorites is not filled up. What were these people involved in? What kind of sin was it? And it talks about that in in Wisdom of Solomon, starting in in chapter 12 in verse 1. For your immortal spirit is in all things. For this reason you correct little by little those who fall away. And you remind and warn them of the sins they commit so they may be freed from evil and believe in you, O Lord. For you hated hated the inhabitants of your holy land long ago because they practiced very hateful works of sorcery and unholy rites. These unmerciful murderers of children who ate sacrificial meals of human flesh and blood. These these initiates in the midst of an orgy, these parents and murderers of helpless children, you willed to destroy by the hands of our fathers, that the land most precious of all to you might be a worthy colony of the servants of God. So this is, uh, it's like, whoa, okay. The sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure, and this explains what some of the sin of the Amorites was. Think about the kind of depravity these people involved in. Child sacrifice, cannibalism, eating the flesh and blood of humans, sorcery, the occult, orgies. I mean, this is incredibly depraved people. And uh, here, a little further on in Wisdom of Solomon, it talks about how God even wants to give those people a chance to repent. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed, but he does bring judgment in the end now recall this is not the first time that God wiped out a group of people first time I think of is the flood the flood of Noah where he wiped out saved eight people wiped out everybody else because of the depravity that was going on at the time second time I think of is Sodom and Gomorrah God sent down angels to find out was it as bad as he heard the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the answer was, yes, it was. So God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, again, spared a righteous few, Lot and his two daughters. And another time we discussed recently was in the story, in almost time, was was the story of the Ninevites, that I don't know what they were doing, but it was so bad that God sent Jonah to a foreign land to tell them that he was going to obliterate the city of Nineveh. And the people had the good sense to repent, and they thought, "Hey, let's just repent. Maybe God will spare us." And sure enough, He did spare them. So, so this is not the only time that God has either obliterated or threatened to obliterate people. And, and you can get this this sense of you know God's this mean, cruel, uh, vengeful, punishing God, but. I think it's really important for us to get a clear picture of who God is and why He would do something like this, why He would give instructions to this. I see the character of God. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. Great passage that, to me, reveals the heart and character of God towards people who are in serious sin. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. Start verse 10. As for you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you spoke, saying, Our errors and lawlessness are upon us, and we waste away in them. So how can we then live? Say to them, As I live, thus says the Lord, I do not will the death of the ungodly man. So the ungodly man should turn from his way and live. Turn hardly from your way. Why should you die, O house of Israel? So this picture is here. God doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. He wants people to return and repent, which is why when the people of Nineveh repented, God relented on the destruction that he had promised. Also, in verse starting in verse 14, Ezekiel 33. Again, when I say to the ungodly man, you will surely die. And he turns from his sin, does judgment and righteousness, restores the pledge, gives back what he's stolen, walks in the ordinances of life without committing wrongdoing. He will surely live. He will not die. None of his sins he committed be remembered, for he does judgment and righteousness. By doing these things he shall live. Yet the sons of the people will say, the way of the Lord is not upright." But it's their way that's not upright. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits lawlessness, he'll die because of it. But when the sinner turns from his lawlessness and does judgment and righteousness, he shall live because of it. Yet this is what you say, the way of the Lord is not upright. O house of Israel, I shall judge every one of you according to his way. So this guy's picture of God is, if you're you're living a righteous life and you turn away at the end, you're going to be punished. But if you're living a wicked life and you repent at the end and turn away, God says, I'm happy to forgive you. I don't want to see anybody destroyed. That's who God is. That's the heart of God. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. He wants everyone to turn away, even the most wicked, and repent. And that's why he spared Nineveh from destruction. And that's why he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah and the Amorites and the people in the time of Noah and the flood. So this is just the character of God. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. But people who refuse to repent, they, they will face the consequences of the Lord's judgment. So this is a, uh, the other thing here I, I see about God, God's very merciful. You know, you think most people, and most people saying, wait a minute, this guy's lived a wicked life his whole life. He repents at the end and you're going to give him a free pass. That doesn't seem fair. And God says, hey, that's the way I am. That's that's the nature of God. He's much more forgiving and merciful than any of us are when we turn back and and repent. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. This is the nature of God. So let's go back to to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a a second telling of the law. So Deuteronomy chapter 1. starting in verse 3 now it came to pass in the 48th year in the 11th month on the first day of the month Moses spoke to the sons of Israel according to all the Lord gave him his commandments to them after he killed Sihon the king of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who dwelt in Ashtoreth in Edri beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab Moses began to explain the law saying so this is basically after (coughs) Numbers chapter 21 you have the death of of Sihon and Og. And it's explaining here that right after that happened is when Deuteronomy is given. Where, where Moses is retelling the story, he's about to die, he's preparing the people for what's, what's going to happen in the future. So that's, the, that's the, the context for Deuteronomy. He's retelling all the things that happened right after Sihon and Og had died. We'll talk about Og here shortly. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 2, in verse... 24. Let's go back, I'm sorry, let's go back to Numbers chapter 20. I skipped over a passage here. Numbers 21. But Numbers 21. So we talked about Sihon, uh, about him getting getting killed, and then verse 31. Now Israel dwelt in the cities of the Amorites. Then Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took it in the villages and cast out the Amorites dwelling there. After this they turned and went up the road to Bashan. So Og king of Bashan and all his people came out to meet them in battle at Edri. Then the Lord said to Moses do not fear him for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon king of the Amorites. Who dwelt in Heshbon? So they struck him, his sons, and all his people, until there are no survivors left, and they inherited the land. So this is uh, this is Og, is further north with his territory. They wipe out uh, that kingdom as well. So Deuteronomy chapter two. Let's go back there. So Moses retelling the story after these two kings have been defeated. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 24-25. Now, therefore, rise. Moses retelling the story of what happened. Therefore, rise, break camp, and travel on the Arnon Valley. Behold, I give into your hands Sihon the the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Enter your inheritance and engage him in war, war. On this day, begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the face of all the nations under heaven who when they hear this report of you, will tremble and be in anguish because of your presence. So, this is uh, a turning point in Israel history. So, they're traveling through the wilderness, they defeat Sihon, they defeat Og, and the word gets out to the surrounding nations. Watch out for these people. They just obliterated an entire kingdom, wiped it off the face of the map, and All the nations start to fear the Israelites for the first time. So they they have defeated the two kings. In in the book of Joshua, when these two spies are sent out to Jericho before the people invade, two spies are sent out to Jericho, and Rahab says, listen, the people in our city heard what you did to The kings of the Amorites to Og and to Sihon, and they are scared to death of your nation. The Gibeonites, in Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites, they're they're famous for the the fake out, the Gibeonite deception. They pretend they're from far away, but they aren't. So they they fake out the, the Israelites. And the reason why they did that is because they heard the story of what happened, of them wiping out the Amorite kings. And they just threw themselves in. They came up with a big deception because they were scared to death of the Israelites as well. They didn't want to be wiped out. And they made a peace treaty with them. So this changes the way that nations look at the Israelites because of these two victories. Deuteronomy chapter 2 in verse 26 so this is a, he's retelling the story here. It's a little more detail in the story in, in the account in Deuteronomy, but it's the same story. But it gives you a little more of a feeling for what this victory was like and what their opponents were like. You, you can, you could. Uh, I think if we just read the account in numbers, you kind of miss some of this. It gives you more, of a flavor of who they defeated. So Deuteronomy chapter two, verse twenty-six. So I sent ambassadors from. Uh, Catamoth, desert desert to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with the words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I'll keep strictly to the road. I'll neither turn to the right nor left. You shall sell me, me food for money so I may eat, sell me water for money so I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, just as the sons of Esau, who dwelt in the land of Seir, and the Moabites, who dwelt in Ar, did for me, until I crossed the Jordan to the land the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. For the Lord our God hardened his spirit and made his heart stubborn, so he might deliver him into your hand as to this day. Then the Lord said to me, Behold, I've begun to give Sihon his land over to you. Begin to inherit his land. So Sihon and all the people came out to engage us in war at Jahaz, but the Lord our God delivered him over to us. So we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. We conquered all his cities at that time. We utterly destroyed every city, one after the other. And we did not leave the women and children alive. We took only the cattle as plunder for ourselves, along with the spoil of the cities, from Aroer to the bank of the Arnon River, and from the city in the ravine as far as the mountains of Gilead. There was not one city that escaped us. The Lord our God delivered them into our hands, only we did not go into the land of the sons of Ammon, anywhere along the Jabbok River, or the cities and mountains, as the Lord our God commanded us. So, uh, there's one verse in here, you, you may have noticed, it says that the Lord hardened his spirit. You say, wait a minute. Okay, if the Lord hardened the spirit, uh, does that mean he didn't have free will? You know, did God just say, "I'm, I'm going to harden this guy's heart so he's he's going to resist them"? We ran into the same thing. Multiple times in the book of Exodus, where it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, a lot of people have said, "Well, God hardens people's heart and He softens people's hearts. So, I mean, hey, how can you blame us? It's, God's God's in control. He just kind of turns off the turns on and off the faucet of whose heart He's going to harden and soften. Early Christians didn't see it that way because the Bible talks about God hardening people's hearts, but it also says talks about. People hardening their own hearts. Do not harden your heart as you did in the the rebellion. And even in the story of Exodus, Pharaoh. sometimes it talks of Pharaoh hardening his heart. Other times it talks about God hardening his heart. So who's hardening somebody's heart? Early Christians had a beautiful explanation of this. They said, God hardening someone's heart. It's like the sun, the rays of the sun on a warm day that's shining on a piece of wax and a piece of clay. The same sun hardens the clay, but it softens the wax. Okay, And so they said the challenge is you need to have a wax-like heart, not a clay-like heart. You need to have the kind of heart where when the Lord, when the chastening and discipline of the Lord comes, you become softer. You don't become more stubborn. So you get to choose what kind of heart you want to have. Okay, you get to choose. This doesn't negate free will, the idea of God hardening and softening people's hearts. Okay, There was an early Christian explanation. And I'll, I'll provide the references and the notes for that. So God does not override our free will in passages like this. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. So that was, that was Sihon. Now we, now we turn our attention to Og. Starting in verse 1, "...we turned and went up to the road from Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us." So this is going further northward. "...he and all his people to battle at Andri. Edri. And the Lord said to me, "...do not fear him, for I delivered him and all his people and all his land into your hands. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon." So the Lord our God delivered Og of Bashan into our hands." And all his people. And we struck him until none of his seed remained. Also at that time we conquered all his cities. There was not a city we did not take from them. Sixty cities. All the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. Beside a great many cities of the Perizzites. We utterly destroyed them as we did Sihon, king of Heshbon. Utterly destroying every city, one after another, women and children, but all the cattle and spoil the cities we took as booty for ourselves. At that time, we also took the land from the hands of the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan, from Arnon River to Mount Hermon. Uh, the Sidonians call Hermon Sirion and the Amorites call it uh, Sinir. And all the cities of the plain, all, Gideon, all, uh, all Gilead, all Bashan, as far as Salka and Idri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained in Rephaim. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Behold, it's in the citadel of the sons of Ammon, nine cubits in its length and four cubits in its width, measured by the forearm of a man. So... In some translations, it, was, it says here uh, of the Rephaim in the Masoretic text. I think it says the giants. But uh, if you read if you read the, all the references here that refer to the same thing, it's basically these are these are extremely big people. He was descended from the 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 giants, and you know, it talks about Goliath, and there's some other people in the scripture, different places, who are referred to as being unusually large people. And the height doesn't give his height, but it gives the size of his bed. All right, it says. <laughs> All right, and and so of course, as many of you no doubt have figured out, this is where you get the original king size bed right here. Okay, so this is. <laughs> and, so and actually, the width of the bed—it's amazing to me. It's basically the same width as a modern king size bed. So. A cubit is from from the elbow to the tip tip of your fingers. It depends on how big the people were back at that time, but it's roughly I don't know 16 18 inches. So four cubits is what six feet. All right, six feet, two meters. All right, that's and that's the that's the width of a king's a modern king size bed. So there you go. The only difference was the only difference was it's twice as it's the same width, but it's twice as long. Basically, twice as long, like 13 and a half feet long. Uh, so, th- so this is a massive bed, and it's made of iron, which tells me the guy must have been pretty heavy. That he wouldn't make it out of wood. So, so this this guy was enormous. So they give you and 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 his his bed was, I guess, like they, they preserved it in a museum, or they was, it was this was a an unusual artifact. So uh, uh, that's his, this is King Og, the famous uh, king with the gigantic iron bed. So why? Again, why would God insist that these people here, the Amorites and then crossing into, into Canaan, you see later in the book of Joshua, of wiping the people out? Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, this is a on numbers not in Deuteronomy, but but in Deuteronomy seven, it talks about how the Amorites, the Canaanites, and these other people, if they lived beside them, married, intermarried with them, had close relationships with them, that they would end up corrupting God's people. And it says there in Deuteronomy 7, God wants His people to be a holy people, to be His own special people. And if they are living and associating and making treaties with and intermarrying with these incredibly corrupt people, then they're going to be corrupted as well. You know, that's really 2 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about that as well. About, let's let's turn there. 2 Corinthians 6. I A mean, lesson for us. God doesn't want us obviously he doesn't want to go around killing other people, killing wicked people, but we gotta be careful about the influence of people that we are close to, people we marry, people we have close ties with, close relationships with. That this, this has always been a danger for God's people. First Corinthians 6:14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part is a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For you're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. From all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. So, the idea of holiness, you can't boil it down to simply a list of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. It's, It's being separate from the world, not conforming to the world. Being very careful about the relationships we have with people in the world. Obviously, this this has a huge bearing on the people that we marry. It's pretty obvious uh, what what he's saying there, as far as that's concerned. But uh, but even the people that we're close to, that they can they can uh, they can mess us up. You know, Bible says in 1 Corinthians it says in fifteen it says, "Don't be deceived. Bad company that corrupts good character. You tend to become like the people you hang around with. Those who run with the wise grow wise." So that has a bearing on who we're close to, who we're who we marry. It has a bearing on uh, also. It has a bearing on what we let into our our eyes and our ears with media as well. So so uh, uh, the, the God's concerned about His people getting corrupted by the world. He always has been, and He had a rather dramatic way of showing it back in back in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, James one twenty seven. It says that pure and undefiled religion. Is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Some translations will say unstained or unpolluted by the world. So, so uh, just just this is this is a principle we see even back in the Old Testament. God wants His people to be holy. He doesn't want to be corrupted by the uh, the people who they're going to be coming in contact with, who are incredibly wicked. The other thing is these victories are. Incredibly important in the history of Israel, the victories over these two kingdoms. And you see it in Deuteronomy how many different cities, and they were, they were walled cities, and they were fortified, fortified cities, that, that these were two massive victories for God's people over the kingdoms. They set the, the fear, of, put the fear of the Lord in the other nations that were around them. But this story is, is told again and again throughout the history of the people about how God did this. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, right before Moses dies. <coughs> he's preparing the people to enter into Canaan, where he can't, he can't go himself. Deuteronomy 31. And he wants to fortify them and give them courage for, what, for the challenges that are ahead. Starting in verse 1. Now Moses finished speaking these words to the children of Israel. Then he said to them, I'm 123 years old today. I'm I'm sorry. I'm 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord said to me, "You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God Himself crosses over before you. He'll destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them." Joshua himself is also crossing over before you, as the Lord said. Then the Lord will do to them as He did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the the, uh, Jordan and their land when he destroyed them. The Lord gave them over to you, and you'll do to them as I commanded you. Be valiant and strong. Do not fear or be afraid of them. Do not be terrified before them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes before you and with you and among you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So, So Moses is saying... Remember what the Lord did to these two nations. Don't forget that. The Lord did that and He can do the same thing when you cross the Jordan River and go into the Promised Land to inherit the Promised Land. So this story is repeated again and again as an encouragement to see what the Lord did and what He can do. Another significant thing about taking over the land of these two kings is that this is where two and a half of the of the 12 tribes the inheritance of two and a half of the tribes this is uh, Reuben, Ged, and half of the tribe of Manasseh will inherit this land east of the Jordan that was the possession of these two kingdoms and then the other nine and a half tribes will take over the land on the other on the, on the west side of the Jordan River but uh, this is going to be a tremendous encouragement to people in Nehemiah chapter 9. When Ezra, when the, after, after the captivity, when, when the people come back and Ezra is addressing the people in Nehemiah 9, he reminds them of the great things that the Lord had done in the past. Uh, when they were obedient to him, and he points out this as an example. In Psalms 135 and 136, they're, they're encouraging Psalms. That give praise to God. Let's turn there. If you have a Bible in the Septuagint, it's uh, Psalm 134 and uh, 135. So, Psalm 135 in 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 most Bibles. Psalm 134 in the Septuagint. So this is a long time later. <clears throat> Starts off. Praise the name of the Lord, you His servants. Praise the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, God is good. Sing to His name, for He is good. And then it recounts all the amazing things that we want to praise the Lord for. Verse 8, He struck the firstborn of Egypt from man to cattle. He sent forth signs and wonders in your midst, O Egypt, among Pharaoh and his servants. He struck many nations and destroyed many kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. He gave their land as an inheritance an inheritance for Israel. His people, O Lord, your name abides forever. O Lord, your memorial unto generation of generations. So this is... Great psalm of praise. And the one right after it, thanking God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. This is Psalm uh, 136 or in the the Septuagint 135. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His mercy endures forever. And it speaks about uh, down in verse 13. To him who divided the Red Sea into parts, his mercy endures forever. He led Israel through in the midst of it, his mercy endures forever. Who overthrew Pharaoh and all the hosts in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. For him who led the people through the wilderness, his mercy endures forever. Him who drew water from the hard rock, his mercy endures forever. Him who struck down great kings, his mercy endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his mercy endures forever, who gave their land as inheritance, for his mercy endures forever. So this is the singing praises to God. So we see in the Psalms that the people would thank God, would praise and exalt God, remembering the wonderful things that he's done in the past, praising him and thanking him for it. Now, what's the the lesson for us to learn in this? Remember the things that God has done in the past and the victories that he's brought about. Satan, the great liar and deceiver, is always trying to discourage us and to thwart us and The answer to that is not to become an optimist and just be a positive thinker. The answer to me is to be a realist and to speak the truth and to remind ourselves of the things that God has done in the past. One of the great reasons for reading the scriptures and reading the stories of the Old Testament is we see what God has done in the past. And we can remind ourselves of all the victories, all the great, incredible things that God has done. And praise Him and honor Him and thank Him for that. How He has always kept His promises. And He has defeated all of His enemies over time. That's also why we gather together the first day of the week, to remember the resurrection of Jesus every week, to take the Lord's Supper, to remember the body and blood of Christ. And we need to meditate on these things, to recollect them, to repeat them in our prayers to God and the songs that we sing. And this is what Moses told the people, to give them confidence that as they moved into the promised land, remember what the Lord did. How he worked through you, how the Lord defeated those two awesome kingdoms, and uh, you know wherever I don't know what you're what you're challenging with, challenged with in your faith today. But uh, you know we have a a lot of challenges facing us. People facing career challenges, economic challenges. Where where are you going to live? What are you going to do? Whatever challenges you're facing in life, and Satan will want to discourage you. And I would encourage you that just like throughout Israel's history, God said, remember the victories that were achieved in the past. Recall them. Sing about them. Praise God for them. And I think that's why Mary, when angel Gabriel came to her, he said, for God, nothing will be impossible because she understood all the miracles that God had performed throughout history. So don't let go of those things. Let's be encouraged by that. Let's remember those things, what God has done in the Scriptures and also what God has done in your life personally. So conclusions and takeaways from all this. First of all, uh, when we're challenged by others with, hey, what's this genocidal maniac God in the Old Testament doing, killing all these people? Let's remember That the people who were wiped out were involved in incredible depravity and they refused to repent. That God doesn't want anybody to perish, even the Gentiles. He's proven that multiple times. God is patient and merciful, but his patience does have its limits. And he's also just. But the Lord operates on a different timetable than we do. We want things right away. Uh, God told Abraham, yeah, you're going to get this land. It's just going to take 400 years. So God's, God's operating on a different timetable. And for his own reason, he wanted to wait until the sin of the Amorites had reached his full measure. And then the Amorites would be, would be uh, wiped out and, and removed from, from the field. We also see lessons about God's holiness here, that he wanted to wipe the people out because he didn't want his own people to be corrupted. So that's going to have an impact on us of just seeing that God wants us to be a holy people for him as well. And that when God hardens people's hearts, that doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't mean he's overriding their free will. So let's have soft hearts so that when God chastens us, that we, we draw closer to him. And I hope that stories like this and stories from your own life can provide a mental scrapbook of all the history of how the wonderful things that God has done and the victories he's brought about. Because this story, these two victories, changed the mindset of Israel. And this is something they talk about over and over again throughout, throughout the rest of the scriptures. And this is what encouraged them and put fear in the heart of their enemies as they moved into the promised land. Amen. Amen.